The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. How's that, Twiggy? A little to the right. No better? Solid. Now, as someone said, never more nostalgic than for the things you once knew and have no more. Hi, Buck. Good evening, Buck. Hi, Wilma, Dr. Hewer. Oh, say, what's this? Just a change of scenery. These four walls, it was beginning to feel like solitary confinement around here. Well, why don't you say something? We could have had some windows put in. Why bother? All looks the same. The city's climate control, nothing ever changes around here. Now, I feel sorry for you people. You'll never know the joy of discovering a sunset that just happens. A pale hint of mauve. Everything is programmed, even your climate. You know, no fall, no spring, no rain, no snow, no nothing. It's always the same. Now, I went outside today, I couldn't believe it was January. It is January, isn't it? Yes. January 7th. London. And yes, it is Thursday, January 7th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Check out our websites, chrwradio.com or our archive site, justrightmedia.org with a triple W in front of that, of course. Well, Robert, we made it into 2010. What do you think? So far, so good. So far, so good. <laughs> well, let's see if we can ruin it for people right off the bat by discussing an issue we were discussing in the last, at the end of the last year, and that, of course, is the whole issue of, uh, well, I guess our theme today is climate control is people control. That's how I sort of phrase the whole thing. And what we'll be doing today is talking just a little bit about the fallout of uh, Copenhagen and mostly about the science of global warming and in addition to some of the research Robert has done on this issue got some fascinating clips for you from other people who know a lot about this issue and will up you know actually inform us on what the science is about and at the end of the show if we get some time I want to touch upon the whole concept of waste and how waste fits into the environmental movement how so much of what we call waste is really a propaganda campaign and so with that that's how we're going to start now you know I think it's been called the I was listening to some people that called it the biggest non-event of the past year, um, referring, of course, to the Copenhagen issue. And National Post was calling it the biggest upcoming disaster uh, that was pending for months and months. But no matter what your expectations were on either side of the issue, they were sure to be dashed by the mere fact that the Copenhagen Climate Conference was a completely unreal exercise. And, of course, there's what we revealed as the whole fraud of carbon credits, which is a Ponzi scheme on a scale that will make us soon ask, made off who? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we heard on our last show dealing with ClimateGate um, how Al Gore is making millions from people who will be losing their investments in his green technology Ponzi scheme unless 
governments can be convinced to pour billions and trillions of dollars into economically unsupportable technologies, unsupportable today. The, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, the word gore may soon be replacing the word Ponzi as the new icon of the pyramid scheme. <laughs> be appropriate. You know, that poor, you know, you could say, that poor man has lost his savings. He got gore, you know. <laughs> it fits as smoothly as Madoff's name seemed to suit the definition of his economic activity. So if someone's made off with your money, it means you got gored. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it interesting that they're both into green? <laughs> These are the kinds of things I sit around on holidays thinking about yeah, all day long. Yeah, it took you a long time yeah, to come up with that one, I'm yeah, sure. I'll bet. Yeah. But, um, you know, we last covered, covered global warming when we discussed the climate gate scandal that broke near the end of last year. And if we should have by now learned one simple thing, or single thing rather, about the nature of the whole experience, it is that government corrupts everything it marries itself to, be it health care, education, energy, religion, and yes, even the sciences, to say nothing of how it wreaks mindless destruction on economic activity. But, we have to remember what government is, and I just want to put this reminder you know, in our minds that government is about the use of force. Force is what is governed, always reminds Isabel Patterson, and government's not confined to limiting their use of force in the administration of justice, which of course means prohibiting the initiation of physical force between non-consenting individuals. They will instead act upon their own agendas, and then everything they control, finance or own, will of necessity and of intent serve the purpose of that agenda. And this agenda is not a conspiracy, although there are many conspiracies within it, and it's rarely explicitly expressed. In the broadest sense, governments will move in the direction of collectivism and in the inventions of group rights which do not exist in reality, and away from individualism and the reality of individual rights. So, you know, though they were dysfunctional on every level, both Kyoto and Copenhagen were symbolic of the disease that afflicts the world body politic. An avowed hatred of freedom and capitalism combined, this is the fascinating part, with an envy of the wealth created by freedom and capitalism. And the appeasement of the freer capitalistic nations to the unfree totalitarian dictatorships around the world is the incentive and the stimulus that makes those unfree nations hate the West while grinding their own people into a poverty that can only be created by a philosophically collectivist government. That's the only way it can happen. So to hide this disgustingly obscene and unconscionable agenda, if you want to call it that, it has been clothed in a make-believe debate over climate, a completely uncontrollable by humanity factor on which all of the fraud and theft are being justified. Now, that's the fundamental argument I'm making and continue to make. I know that most Canadians do not agree with my point of view. January 4th, 2010, London Free Press article, Planet in Peril, based on a poll. Uh, article by Christina Spencer reports that more than half of Canadians believe greenhouse gases pr are produced by human activity are a key factor spurring climate change. The findings of the Leger marketing poll were conducted less than a week after the end of the climate talks in Copenhagen. Now here's what they found. 53% of those polled believe that human-induced generation of greenhouse gases is a key driver of climate change and without immediate and significant action, the planet as we know is in peril, you know, all in quotes, and I'm thinking that's quite a package. 53% believe it's our fault that we have to take action and that the planet is in peril. So I don't know where the people who might only believe one of those three things yes. would fit in. But 25% of those polled say the debate on climate change has confused me. And while I think humans have an impact on climate, I'm not sure how serious the problem is. And 16% of those polled say that, 
quote, climate change is a natural occurrence and not significantly impacted by human behavior, and spending time and money on the issue is largely a waste, end quote. And given the three options, that's the group I would fit in. How about yourself, Robert? Well, I'm absolutely convinced that there is no anthropomorphic uh, change to the climate at all whatsoever. We're insignificant. You're going to be making that point momentarily. Now, most disturbingly, I thought, David Schultz, the vice president of Leger Marketing, is quoted as saying, quote, the poll is good news. Most Canadians are recognizing that we have to do something that we need to take action, end quote. Now, I'm thinking, why would it be good news that a majority of Canadians believe in a myth? (laughs) <laughs> you know, a comment like this makes me suspicious of the questions act on, you know, asked on the poll. Ob- objectivity, anybody? So, you know, however you look at it, though, the true believers outnumbered the confused and the not confused combined. So it was 53 to 41 percent on that basis. Now, a true believer, of course, is a believer precisely because no facts or arguments will deter his or her belief. But there are some, we have to hope, on the rational side of this debate, or the rational side of this debate will be democratically lost, uh, you know, who have arrived at their conclusion in error, basing their conclusion on what they honestly hold to be scientific facts. So before returning to the philosophical and political side of the climate debate, for the benefit of those who really want to know, and for the benefit of those still open to hearing the other side of the issue, Robert and I thought we'd begin with the science of global warming. What is real, what's not, and why? Yes, the planet may be in peril, but not from any threat posed by humanity and not in any visual future in our lifetime anyway. So before that, we'll just take this quick break. And when we return on the other side... uh, Oh, by the way, what you're going to be hearing here is from BBC News, uh, one clip uh, from... Copenhagen, talking about Copenhagen, speaking to a gentleman named Miliband, and they asked what was wrong, originally aired December 20th, and then we're going to hear a December 8th uh, clip from CTV with Lawrence Solomon also talking about Copenhagen, and when we return, Robert will be bringing us right up to date on what the latest is on the science of global warming. The British Climate Change Minister Ed Miliband has accused some countries involved in the Copenhagen talks of not wanting to reach a deal. He also described the last four hours of the summit as the most chaotic show on earth. Well, earlier I spoke to Mr Miliband and asked him what had gone wrong. The, the most significant difficulty the talks faced was that some leading developing countries like China didn't want to accept legal obligations on them uh, under a treaty. And that is the thing that is not, wasn't just a problem in Copenhagen, but is going to continue to be a problem for us as we seek to turn some of the agreements of Copenhagen into a legal treaty. If, if that's the case, then why bother? Well, I think because the alternative to, to, to bothering, or the alternative to, to, to actually taking action, is to give up. And I think giving up would be a disaster for the world, frankly. But and if the you're truth saying, is, this, if you're saying that the situation isn't going to change and you don't believe you're going to get the cooperation that one needs to see a legally binding agreement next year, uh, where do we go from here? Well, that's a, exactly the right question. I think we can mobilise the vast majority of states that do want a legal treaty, countries from the, like the Maldives, countries like Gabon uh, in Africa, many of whom spoke up, actually, at the, uh, at the talks, at the final plenary of the talks, to say we need this agreement uh, to, to, to come forward. Um, I think we need to mobilise them to persuade some of the larger emerging countries that we need to move forward and it needs to be legally binding. And how do you suggest one does that? How do you suggest one can mobilise those countries? 
Well, I think international politics is about persuasion, and I think that some countries, like China, will be quite shocked, I think, at the way in which people are now seeing that they, they were in part responsible for some of the problems that these talks had. And I, I think that we can persuade them that they have nothing to fear from turning their commitments into, legally, into a legally binding agreement, because the truth is that they are committing to some actions, and it's good that they've committed to these actions, which are going to cut carbon emissions, but they need to be persuaded that they have nothing to fear and actually uh, have everything to gain in terms of trust and everyone else doing, doing their bit uh, from turning it into a legally binding agreement. And I think when, when they see that the large majority of other countries agree with that too, I hope we can persuade them. the argument then for me um, it, it, when we're talking about climate change it's that then the argument then becomes is it man-made and that there's an agreement that there is climate change because climates change that's right there's actually no agree no disagreement at all among any scientists that the climate has been uh, changing there's no disagreement that uh, that temperatures have been warming uh, over the last century in fact uh, all the skeptics say that temperatures have not only been warming over the last century they've been warming uh, for the last few centuries since uh, the Earth has been coming out of the Little Ice Age. So there's no disagreement there at all. The only disagreement is, does your SUV cause the planet to warm? That's, that's the disagreement. Why can't we get that right? Considering scientists the world over can, you know, can figure on the, the detrimental effects of pollution um, and, and the way we create and use energy. Why can't we get that right to figure out what it's doing? Well, partly because the, the data has been uh, cooked, uh, partly because uh, scientists who have been skeptical have been shut out of the process. Uh, what the ClimateGate uh, emails show is that these scientists are willing to hide the data, to distort the data, and to even break the law uh, to avoid freedom of information laws, because that's what those emails say. And you're saying, or at least the, the people that have discovered this are saying, that the motivation of these scientists then is so that the funding continues to come in because the funding will only support the man-made theory. Well, that's one of the speculations over why scientists are distorting the data. Another speculation is that they are true believers. They really believe that the planet is in peril. They really think there's no time to make a change. Uh, and... Uh, that they, to, to persuade the public, they have to create these very scary scenarios, distort the data, otherwise the, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Do you think Copenhagen's a sham, I mean, or do you think it's, it, it's a, a useless endeavor? Uh, well, yes, it's, it's a political, uh, it, it's entirely a political uh, event. Even before the climate gate memos uh, were revealed, uh, it was clear that nothing was going to come out of it. And, um, and now we can, we can again be confident that nothing is going to come out of it except for political posturing. Lawrence Solomon, thank you for your expertise. The name of the book is called The Deniers. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn here joined with Robert Metz. And uh, you can join in on the conversation at 519-661-3600. Or you can also download all of the Just Right 
shows that have aired over the last couple of years at uh, www.justratemedia.org. And Robert, just before you yeah. begin, just an observation. Did you notice there how Miliband, who is arguing in favor of the Copenhagen uh, thing, is arguing agreement, getting people to you know get together and we have to do it and it's got to be done, whereas anybody who's so-called denier is actually talking about the science. Exactly. The, 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 the people supporting Copenhagen never talk about the science. They talk about politics. They talk about getting countries to agree, about the failure of this and getting that guy to get that and this and that. And I'm going, yeah, where's the science? <laughs> they don't even bring it up. The science is right here, Bob. Good. And Let's I'm going to go. cover that in the next uh, 10, 20 minutes. Good luck. Uh, yeah, good luck, <laughs> because there is a tome of material out there to uh, agree with Lauren Solomon. And... Uh, we really need to get the information out there because even though it's not a popularity contest and the climate is what the climate is and it doesn't care how many people agree with it or not, the facts have to be brought out there to stop the politicians from curtailing our freedom. Not just the CO2 emissions, but they're talking about taking away our freedom and our money and giving it to people who don't deserve it. And we've got to get the information out there, at least to get that the, uh, the politicians thinking that they don't have to follow the trend of a lot of the countries out there. They can actually stand a, up. At least they could be honest and just call it foreign aid. Exactly. You know, why call it, why go through all this climate and stuff and just call it foreign aid? Because <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> it must be unpopular to, to right. use that word. Well, what I hope to do, Bob, on this show and following shows sometime in the near future, first of all, is to take on the falsehoods of the climate change fear mongers in stages. I want to challenge their science, specifically the conclusion of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I want to show how acting irrationally out of fear and panic to false information can do more harm to humans and our planet than any real climate change could do. And I want to hold accountable those individuals and groups, especially the United Nations, for their scaremongering and their outright lying to the world. But today, today I'll just address some of the, the poor science that the IPCC and Al Gore have been using to push their anti-human agenda. By the way, that anti-human is a term that you'll hear later on in a clip uh, made by Patrick Moore, co-founder of uh, Greenpeace, Greenpeace yeah. to describe these people. So very quickly, those pushing for the reduction of CO2 have taken this line of reasoning. Global temperatures are rising, which they are. CO2 is a greenhouse gas, which it is. Man produces CO2. Yes, we do. Therefore, they say, the climate changes or global warming we are experiencing are due to man. Wrong. That's a total leap of faith, because it is not a leap of science. Their final conclusion, though, and their marketing point, is that the science is settled, irrefutable, and agreed to by all scientists. Anyone who disagrees is disreputable, a climate change denier, a heretic. Well, I want to tackle that particular point first, Bob. A group mm -hmm. of independent scientists, which used to call themselves the Science and Environmental Policy Project, but who now call their group the Non-Governmental International Panel, Panel on Climate Change, the NIPCC, have produced a report with a petition appended to it. You can find this online, by the way. The petition said the following. And it's a lengthy quote, but this is what they're all signing to. Quote, we urge the United States government to reject the global warming agreement that was written in Kyoto, Japan in December 1977 and any other similar... 97. Yeah, I think you said 70. Oh, did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck in the 70s. Or any other similar proposals. 
The proposed limits on greenhouse gases would harm the environment, hinder the advance of science technology, and actually damage the health and welfare of mankind. There is no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will in the foreseeable future cause catastrophic heating of the Earth's atmosphere and disruption of the Earth's climate. Moreover, there is substantial scientific evidence that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide produce many beneficial effects upon the natural plant and animal environments of the earth, unquote. Now, that was what the that, petition That's was. way longer than those, those poll quotes done by Leger Marketing. Yeah, no, this is <laughs> so very specific. So that's a lot specific. of things to have to agree to. Yep. Can you imagine how many people are going to agree to this? Remember, now about 100 people created the United Nations IPCC report, about 100 scientists. They say it was about 2,500, but... That included clerks and anybody who had anything to do with it, including people, scientists who yes. disagreed We've covered with that. the report. Yeah. So it was actually about 100 authors to that report. How many do you think, how many scientists signed this declaration saying that there's absolutely no anthropogenic CO2 climate change? I'm aware of uh, a number of such declarations, and there's always in the thousands. Well, I'll tell you, 31,478... American scientists, and that's just Americans. This was not circulated outside of the United States. And that number swamps the highest number Gore has ever thrown at us. Right. Remember, Gore said there's not one scientist <laughs> who disagrees with this. See, this, this, is, this blows me away, Robert, how, how blatantly, blatantly people like Al Gore will lie to us, to our Lying face. through this, their teeth. It's, I mean, it's a pure lie. Pure, yeah. pure, 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 pure lie. You know, I, I, I use other words on the air, but this guy's making millions at lying. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So uh, let me get into a bit of the science itself now, because that's, that's just more we think this versus you yeah, think politics. that. It's a numbers game, it's politics, and like I said before, reality is what reality is. Is the climate warming or not? Is it due to CO2 or not? Those are the questions. So let's get a little bit of facts here. Mm -hmm. Okay, the, the NIPCC, the non-governmental one, took apart every assertion made by the United Nations government picked sciences. And here are some of the highlights. Global temperatures rise and fall all the time. In fact, global temperatures have been seen to fall for decades, even though we see CO2 levels rise during the same time. Actually counterintuitive to what these other people are saying. Mm -hmm. The Earth is currently nearing the end of a 10,000-year period of global warming. And I don't think That's there was any U U SUVs out there 10,000 the years around, ago. Yeah. <laughs> about every 100,000 years, there is about a 10,000-year period of warming, clearly documented to be due to the changing radiance from the sun, due to both the natural cycles of the sun itself, but more importantly, by several cycles, the Earth goes through as it orbits the sun and spins on its axis. Now, these cycles are called the Milankovitch cycles. I don't really hear anything about there about these, you know, in the news or anything like no. that. That's just blank out. You'll, hear a, couple, you'll hear a couple of comments about it in the clips we've got coming. Yeah, yeah. The combined effects, the Blankovic cycles are the combined effects of the Earth's orbital shape or eccentricity, its axial tilt or obliquity, its axial precession and its apsidal precession and its orbital inclination. 
All of these characteristics of the Earth's movement in its orbit are well documented and are known to drive Earth's climate from ice age to warming to ice age again. So we're heading for another ice age. We are actually heading for another ice age. We are at the end of the 10,000-year interglacial warming period. Now, you said that 10,000 years was happened every once every 100,000. About, well, actually there... Or give or take, but does that mean that 90% of the time the Earth is like in an ice age? Uh, uh, no, yes, actually for um, the last billion years, it's very difficult because... Because you go earlier, then the Earth was very hot. Um, actually... What happens is that there have been about five major glacial uh, ice ages on the planet in the last billion years, about five major ones. Matter of fact, one of them was so severe that they've actually seen evidence that there are ice fields, uh, glaciers, at the equator. And I'm not talking just on tops of mountains either. I mean, that's mm -hmm. how severe and how cold the planet can get. And yes... It certainly uh, explains man's absence. <laughs> yes, it does. It's amazing that man or hasn't figured out survived. how to burn CO two yet. <laughs> but as for CO two, yeah. yes, CO two is a greenhouse gas, but it is an insignificant one compared to water vapor, which accounts for the vast majority of any greenhouse effect. Also, the amount of man-made greenhouse gas is again insignificant to the amount of CO two released by nature. The release and capture of CO two by Earth's oceans account for the vast majority of CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Even then, we must remember that CO2 is only a very small component of the atmosphere, being only about 0.05% of the total volume. Now, here's the kicker. There's clear evidence that any warming at the surface is not due to greenhouse gases, including man-made CO2. All greenhouse models... And that means all greenhouse gases, too. I mean, anything called a greenhouse anything, gas, even the pollutants. Yep, yep anything. Yep. It doesn't matter. Aerosols, water vapor, methane, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. There is no greenhouse effect. All greenhouse models show an increasing warming trend with altitude in the troposphere. That's the lower part of the atmosphere, peaking at around 10 kilometers in altitude. However, the temperature data from balloons and satellites gives the exact opposite result. No increased warming, but rather a, a, a slight cooling with altitude. Defies the model totally. There is no greenhouse effect. Anyone inconvenienced by Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth would remember that his graphs of global temperature changes over the past 400,000 years and his graph of CO2 changes over the same period. Did you notice that he showed the graph separately? The temperature graph higher than the CO2 graph, physically higher on the stage. They mm -hmm. weren't overlapping. He did this because he was hiding his own inconvenient truth. If he had superimposed one graph over the other, as they're usually demonstrated in scientific journals, mm -hmm. then everyone would have immediately noticed that CO2 levels follow the temperature changes with a gap of about 800 years. Yes, temperature changes precede CO2 changes. CO2 changes are caused by temperature changes and not the other way around. More heat, more CO2, exactly. less heat, less CO2. You got it. And it's, that makes sense because burning is what causes CO2, including in our bodies. Well, actually, it's not way. because of that, but, but I can you know see where you go it's, with it's that. An, it's, an, it's a byproduct. Uh, yeah, of, but this isn't due to the burning. Remember, these temperature changes themselves well, are caused by... 
Hmm? Just of temperature then. Actually, I'll just I'll, I'll okay. get right into what that what that's about. Remember, the temperature changes are, themselves are caused by the variability in solar radiation. Sure. The sun okay. drives everything. The sun drives everything. To actually think that your SUV wait while waiting for a Tim's donut is changing the climate when there's a huge ball of hydrogen <laughs> in the atmosphere streaming down radiation enough to burn your skin. Well, you know, little steps <laughs> count. If you add them all up, we can almost be as much oh, as one my. flare on the sun. <laughs> if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. But, yeah. Anyway, the reason there's an 800-year gap is that it takes that long for the oceans to heat up or cool down. Remember, they're, they're because water, water yeah. uh, warms and cools slower than air. Well, it's not only that. It's just the sheer the volume. volume of the mm-hmm. oceans and the depth of it. It takes hundreds of years. So when the temperatures start rising due to the sun's variability, the oceans react in kind. And when they get warmer, they release more CO2. When they get cooler, CO2 is absorbed by the oceans, and the oceans can hold more CO2. So... So it's not this, a it's not a burning process. No, well, not burning no, at all. But, but I, I know I, I wasn't using the right word. But what would you call it when when you are releasing a gas from an increase in temperature? Maybe it's not burning at the incendiary level. Is there some kind of burning going on? Like uh, I don't know how, how I'd call it. Well, you know, I'd, you know what I'm saying. No, there's no burning going. What I, what I'd liken it to is, for example, if you've you've heard that if you're, um, for example, on, our digestive juices. You know, they 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 quote I've heard it said, quote-unquote, that they burn the fuel for your body, although that might just be as an no, analogy. No, 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 it's not, not that at all, no. no. It's more akin to, for example, if you've ever heard that chemical- if you were standing on the surface of Mars, your blood would boil because of the lack of air pressure, mm-hmm. right? In other words, the bubbles are coming out of solution. Like when you open up a can of pop, the bubbles come out of solution, right? That's okay. actually CO2, by the way. The same with the oceans. When they're warmer, the bubbles come out of solution. The CO2 is being released from the water itself. Wait a minute, they have, don't say that. They haven't been those yet. <laughs> Carbon the ocean next. Pop, yeah. every pop is a CO2. So that one okay. fact alone, Bob, should cause everyone to dismiss Al Gore's hype and the United Nations anti-human fear-mongering. That one thing alone. But what do we do? There you go. Guess we'll have to take a break before you come back for more, with more. Uh, what we're going to hear next here is uh, we had a clip of uh, from this um, source before, Michael Corrin and Christopher Monkton this past... Um, that was taped this past October on CTS, uh, speaking this time to the science of global warming. And when we come back on the other side of the break, we, you'll be hearing, uh, Robert, you mentioned before from Patrick Moore and a few others of Greenpeace uh, speaking about the whole global warming swindle from a movie of the same ma- name, The Great Global Warming Swindle. So we'll be taking a break now, and we'll be back right after this. In the end, there's a very, very old philosophical principle at stake here and that is that the truth is the truth is the truth however many lies are told however many people tell the lies and however important the people who tell the lies conceive themselves to be and the truth is and we now know this is the truth that global warming isn't a problem a detailed study just published by Professor Richard Lindzen, who is the Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology and Atmospheric Sciences in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This is the guy who knows more about the atmosphere than anyone else in the world. He's been studying it for 40 years. He has done a paper where he has simply correlated the changes in surface temperature with changes in the outgoing long-wave radiation, or outgoing radiation of all kinds, in fact. And what he's found is that as the Earth warms, more radiation 
gets out into space, and if the radiation gets out to space, what is it not doing? It's not staying down here, causing global warming. It's really as simple as this. And what Dick Linson and his uh, postgraduate uh, research colleague, uh, Young Sang Choi, have done is they've analyzed in detail, year by year, for about 15 years, the change in temperature for that year and the change in outgoing radiation for that year, and they've plotted it on what's called a scatter plot, one for each year. Then they've taken the trend of that, and it shows very clearly that there's six times as much radiation escaping into space as a result of any given warming down here than the UN's models predict. Six times as much as they predict. And that means that the effect of CO2 or any greenhouse gas on temperature is, get this, one-sixth of the UN's central estimate. Central estimate, remember, is three and a quarter degrees Celsius for a doubling of CO2. The directly measured result is that it's actually only one-sixth of that, which gives you around 0.5, 0.6 Celsius for a doubling of CO2. And that, in any rational world, will be the end of the scare. of Mrs Thatcher, the UK Met Office set up a climate modelling unit which provided the basis for a new international committee called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. They came out with the first big report which predicted climatic disaster as a result of global warming. I remember going to the scientific press conference and being amazed by two things. First, the simplicity and eloquence of the message and the vigor with which it was delivered. And secondly, the total disregard of all climate science up till that time, including, incidentally, the role of the sun, which had been the subject of a major meeting at the Royal Society just a few months earlier. But the new emphasis on man-made carbon dioxide as a possible environmental problem didn't just appeal to Mrs. Thatcher. It was certainly something very favorable to the environmental idea, what I call the medieval environmentalism of let's get back to the way things were in medieval times and get rid of all these dreadful cars and machines. Uh, they loved it because carbon dioxide was for them an emblem of industrialization. Well, carbon dioxide clearly is an industrial gas and tried and sort of tied in with uh, economic growth, uh, with transportation in cars, uh, with what we call civilization. And uh, there are forces in the environmental movement that are simply against economic growth. They think that's bad. It could be used to legitimize a whole suite of myths that already existed. Anti-car, anti-growth, anti-development, and above all, anti-that great Satan, the US. Patrick Moore is considered one of the foremost environmentalists of his generation. He is co-founder of Greenpeace. The shift to 
climate being a major focal point came about for two very distinct reasons. The first reason was because by the mid-80s a majority of people now agreed with all of the reasonable things we in the environmental movement were saying they should do. Now when a majority of people agree with you, it's pretty hard to remain confrontational with them. And so the only way to, to, to remain anti-establishment was to adopt ever more extreme positions. When I left Greenpeace, it was in the midst of them adopting a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. Like I said, you guys, this is one of the elements in the periodic table, you know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's in our jurisdiction to be banning a whole element. Destroying the, wall were soon the other reason that environmental extremism emerged was because world communism failed, the wall came down, and a lot of peaceniks and political activists moved into the environmental movement, bringing their neo-Marxism with them, and learned to use green language in a very clever way to cloak agendas that actually have more to do with anti-capitalism and anti-globalization than they do anything with ecology or science. The left have been slightly uh, disoriented. Uh, by the manifest failure of socialism and indeed more so of communism as, as it was tried out. And therefore, they still remain as anti-capitalists as they were, but they have to find a new guise for their anti-capitalism. And it was a kind of amazing alliance from uh, Margaret Thatcher on the right through to very left-wing anti-capitalist environmentalists that created this kind of momentum behind a loony idea. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where you can call 519-661-3600 to join us. And I'm here with uh, Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. We're talking about climate change and the science surrounding it. And Bob, I'd never thought I'd actually hear somebody from Greenpeace, or at least the original Greenpeace, Patrick Moore, talking about such terms as anti-capitalism, anti-freedom, anti-human when it comes to the people who are pushing the climate change uh, That's right. model of the UN. And no less disturbing to hear that Margaret Thatcher was on the wrong side of this issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> she, she was on the right side of a lot of issues. Actually, they go into that more in more detail, the Margaret Thatcher link on that movie, The uh, Climate Change Swindle, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is uh, available on YouTube. And you can also get... It's actually called The Great Global Warming oh, Swindle. Oh, sorry, yeah. Great Great Global Warming yeah, Swindle. Yeah, a bit of a tongue twister. Right, yeah, get it on YouTube. It's also available um, as a torrent file, I found, uh, in much higher quality. And you can also uh, get it, I believe, from the Heartland Institute's website, uh, www.heartland.org. Uh, a lot of the information that I've been talking about today came from two publications, the lead author of which was uh, S. Fred Singer of the Science and Environmental po Pro Policy Project and the uh, NIPCC. Uh, one was called Nature, Not Human Activity, Rules the Climate, the other being a huge tome of over 738 pages called Climate Change Reconsidered, which has a number of contributors and reviewers, including that petition by 31,000 plus scientists from the United States who say there is no global warming due to anthropogenic CO2. A number, a number of other conclusions came out of their report as well, by the way. Uh, first of all, that um, there's great robust evidence that the causes of global warming are natural 
that the computer forecasting of future climate changes that the UN are using, they're totally unreliable, that sea level rise is not significantly affected by the rises in, sea, in greenhouse gases, and what I find to be particularly interesting are some of the report's final conclusions, counterintuitive to everything we've been t uh, listening to before from the United Nations, Al Gore and the like. Higher concentrations, they say, of CO2 are more likely to be beneficial to plant and animal life and to human health than lower concentrations. Uh, rem remarkably, um, they think that with higher levels of CO2, you're going to have massive amounts of growth mm -hmm. to help replenish the forests that have been deforested in Brazil yeah. and, and even that right makes here. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. crop yields will be higher. Also, the economic it's almost starting to sound like the DDT disaster. Oh yeah, you know, where, where millions, millions died. died because of um, banning DDT. Banning DDT. Yeah. Also, they are saying that the effects, the economic effects of modest warming, are likely to be positive and beneficial to human health. There will be a longer growing season in temperate climates, benefiting agriculture and forestry industries and lower heating bills. One study estimated that there would be few, 41,000 fewer people who would die each year from respiratory and circulation diseases, and that the overall benefits to the U.S. economy alone would be $104.8 billion in 1990 dollars. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's a lot about the science mm -hmm. of global warming. I could actually get into so much more. Of course, so a warmer planet has a dual thing, too, that people in the cooler climates wouldn't have to heat as much, although yep. people in the hot climates might have to air condition more. So that kind of balances out with today's technologies. And I right. think air conditioning's more straining on our energy resources than is heating, would you say? I would say so, wouldn't yeah, you? Because it's, it's all electricity But you know something? I think that's irrelevant. As long as government are the people in control of power production, power pr distribution, paying for power in the huge monopolies that they have right now, then it's an issue. But once they get out of that business of supplying power, then I think that we're just going to be finding this, these kinds of issues will well, just go well, away. That's amazing. Cause what, a, what a segue into my topic, because I'll be coming up next. Because, you know, it's the elephant in the room, you know. It's not about green. It's about energy. And it's about government incompetence at the provision of energy. And that's what I want to talk about after the next break. And going into this break, what you're going to hear um, bo on both sides of the bumper were taken from BBC News. The first one uh, from December 12th, they were, it was a panel on climate change. And you, on one side, you had the people in favor. On the other side, you had uh, the person against. <laughs> and uh, you'll be hearing a little bit about that. And then on the other side, another BBC piece that I just picked up this past January 2nd. And with the hopes that here was somebody who had an answer, a technological answer to, to our energy woes and turned out to be, well, another, another kooky guy. But what can you do? Anyways, here we go. But it, it is vital. It has to be done. And the idea of getting 160-plus governments to agree on something and, and, anyway. to, and you know, to modify their use, it's an ambitious thing, and it has to be done, and it may lead to some changes 10 and 20 years down the road. There are some people who think that, that this whole climate change thing is a way of transferring money from rich countries to poor countries. I wish, I wish yeah, this is the yeah. case. Palestine is not included. Yeah, yes. definitely is not. You know, <laughs> uh, 
they must transfer com uh, monies from, from rich countries to poor, poor countries because who is paying the prices yeah, of exactly. the climate changes? The mm. poor countries, mm. the small right. little islands, yeah. the, the Africa, mm. Asia. So when you say so, it's the poor countries that will pay, yeah. they are absolutely well, bloody right. The poor countries of the world are being asked to take a step backwards in time, away from economic growth, away from economic yeah. development, yeah. away from the mass prosperity yeah. that the Western nations have had for generations, yeah. all in the name of, well, I mean, a theory that says that CO2, that, that carbon emissions are the chief cause of global warming. But as it happens, CO2 emissions have increased over the last 10 years and the global temperature has dropped. Now, I am not a scientist, but I did lecture in philosophy for years and I know a logical contradiction when I see one. And if it is the well, is this a faith-based faith initiative then? We have to have well, faith. If, if CO2 emissions are the chief cause of global warming, then there would have to be a direct correlation between the increase in CO2 emissions and the increase in temperature. And there is a, an inverse correlation, as the statisticians say. Efficiency in the current American economy is actually one of our greatest resources. We're essentially the Saudi Arabia of energy efficiency. We have a huge untapped potential in our infrastructure. America consumes nearly 25% of the world's oil. Recent unrest in the Middle East has brought this heavy dependency into the limelight. Oil's role in the global financial crisis has also added wit to Lovin's cause. He insists getting rid of the stuff would be good news all round. Everything's going to get better. We'll end up with a richer, fairer, cooler, safer world. His plan is to attack both demand and supply. The way we suggest doing it is first to redouble the efficiency of using oil, uh, chiefly by making cars, trucks and airplanes three times more efficient. Then the other half of the oil can be displaced by a mixture on the supply side, about three-fifths of which is saved natural gas, and the other two-fifths is advanced biofuels that can be grown without using any cropland. There's a buzzword in the Lovins' vision. This is a very efficient house. Efficient, efficiency, efficient. Super efficiency, efficient. That's super efficiency. This may be the world's most efficient cooktop. Did you see the water efficient stuff? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> efficiency. You know, that, I, I'm hearing that word so often, Robert, it really made me start to second, to think, to think twice about that word. And I came up with a fascinating uh, theory about this. And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where, we'll, where we will be with you for about another 10 minutes or so. You know, waste not, want not was a saying I was kind of brought up with to some degree. Sure, who wasn't? And, um, and it's true to some degree. But, you know, according to the green machine, each of us should be using less fuel, less power, less energy, etc. In some mystical hope that this approach will lessen mankind's impact on the environment, or in actual fact, CO2, or whatever the current environmental fad is, okay? And we all know that that's just wrong to begin with. I'd like to propose something else. I think what each of us should be doing is using more energy, more productively. And in so doing, we minimize waste. You know, using less is not the same as wasting less. Uh, 
Waste can only be evaluated by the producer and the consumer, not by the very politicians and bureaucrats who've demonstrated their incapability of generating enough energy to sustain a growing population, which is the real problem with, with energy. It's not that we're using more as individuals. We're actually all using less, it's but true. the population's growing. Yep. So there's nothing you can do about that, folks. We, gotta ha- we have to produce more energy. Be careful, Bob. There but, is something they well, can do about it. Yeah, we can waste less. <clears throat> oh, I mean, they can prevent us from having kids, like well, China. Ex- exactly. Nothing, nothing uh, legal <laughs> or, or moral, moral, let's put it that way. But, you know, municipal authorities, for example, believe that you're wasting gas when you idle your car at a specific location and between certain temperatures. But whenever I idle my car, I do so for a reason, and I do not regard it as waste. You know, maybe I don't drive my car often enough or long enough. You know, talk about being green. And so when I do, I'd rather keep my battery charging than, than, you know, drain it unnecessarily. And psychologically, I think waste is predicated by some perceived necessity. It's okay to use energy. What are we being? We got to go? Okay, oh, we're going to take a break. We've got a fire alarm. We've got to get out of here. Okay. Imagine that. Excitement. Okay. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... Oh, Pop, what did you do? Oh, rain! Rain! He made it rain! Isn't that wonderful? I did it! <laughs> I did it, you oh. Pop! I did it! Oh, look what you did! You did it again! Oh, so wonderful! What happened? Did he make it go? Don't be silly. You made me point my levitating finger at that cloud up there and burst it. You mean you made it rain? Stop looking so happy. I don't know how to stop it. That's why I didn't want to do it in the first place. Now, wait a minute. You mean you can't stop it? Then we're in a lot of trouble. Get two ducks, two chickens, two dogs, two cats, and a large ark. Welcome to the flood. (laughs) 